Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Nothing Personal. How are you? It has been my pleasure being with you since the middle of October. And as 2019 comes to an end, we're going to keep going well into 2020, even past 2020. But we got to sort of tie a bow to this decade, to this year. It's hard to believe it's been two decades since Y2K when it was supposed to be the end of the world. And one of the things you get at the end of every year, you get a top 10 list of the best movies, the best shows, you get the top stories. We're going to talk about all these over the course of some bonus pods, but I'm starting with something that interested me. We're all into Twitter. I love when you tweet at me at David P. Sampson. I like it. I like responding. I like hearing other people's points of views, and I'm fascinated with what people are searching. It used to be that we would just sort of guess what people are talking about at the water cooler. Then we were able to measure it by taking surveys, but that wasn't exact. Then the analytics started, and we started to be able to see what the Google searches were. Now we can tell in Twitter who's tweeting about who. It's like Aretha Franklin used to say, who's Zooming who? Well, it's pretty staggering because here in the United States, and if you're listening to me from anywhere but the United States, you're going to smile at this little segment. But we assume that everything's about basketball and baseball and football, and by football I mean the NFL. But we're just the United States. Now, greatest economy, greatest country in the world, no question about it. But what about from a sports standpoint? Well, I'm pretty fascinated. Let me give you a list of the top 10 sports teams worldwide that get tweeted about. See if you can find a common thread in this list. FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Liverpool, Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus, I bet it's not called that, Coca. <laughs> Juventus. Man, you can tell I don't tweet that. Manchester City. Ajax. Club de Flamengo. And then the Los Angeles Lakers. Can you imagine nine of the top ten teams that the world cares about to tweet, to pay attention to? Nine out of ten are soccer teams. They're called football teams, but they're soccer teams. The 10th one is the Los Angeles Lakers. Not one Major League Baseball team, not one National Football League team, and one NBA team. It's staggering to me. And you wonder why we sit around in baseball day in and day out trying to figure out a way to become more international. Why the NBA plays games internationally. Why the NFL goes to London. Why we're all trying to get the international dollar and the international eyeballs because America, as great as it is, it's bordered and it's small. The world is huge. And for whatever reason, these soccer teams have found a way to do it. And it's why they're worth so much more. These soccer teams are worth more than the Lakers, than the Patriots, than the Cowboys. It really is staggering. But then you let's take it down one level and let's talk about the top male athletes in the world. 
Who are the top athletes who people are talking about in the year 2019? Well, would you be surprised to know that the number one most talked about athlete is a guy named Neymar? Ever heard of him? I have. How about Lionel Messi? How about Ronaldo? Top three. Then you get to four and five, LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard. Then six, Kobe Bryant. The NBA's feeling good. Then seven, Tom Brady. Now we've had three NBA players and an NFL player in the top seven. Then we get to Mbappe, a soccer player. We get to Honda, a soccer player. And then Antonio Brown, another football player. Now, Antonio Brown, I will grant you, will only be in the top 10 in 2019. This is a moment in time for him. We're actually going to talk about him, you know, as the years continue and we think about his legacy as what could have been. So the top 10, three soccer players lead the list. You've got NBA players three in a row, LeBron, Kawhi, and Kobe. Kobe, a retired player. No Michael Jordan. No Shaquille O'Neal. No Charles Barkley. You've got Tom Brady, no Patrick Mahomes, no Lamar Jackson, no Bill Belichick. You've got Antonio Brown. Interesting. Where's Mike Trout? The Major League Baseball looks at this list and goes into an absolute panic. And I remember talking to executives about this, about what we need to do to get players to be more popular and how we find a way to market them better. I'm not asking for every MLB player to be in the top 10. How about one MLB player? If we want Mike Trout to be the face of baseball, he's got to be in the top 10. You don't want to be the face? Let's find another one. Even if it's a retired player like Kobe, there's got to be someone in Major League Baseball. Could it be A-Rod? Too polarizing? Do you think people outside of the U.S. actually care about A-Rod other than the fact he's dating J-Lo? I don't know. I don't think so. So which is a Major League Baseball player who has a chance to be the top 10? Let's think about it. How about Aaron Judge? Aaron, this is a call to action. Make yourself worldwide. Not Bryce Harper, not Manny Machado. It's you, Aaron Judge. You've got the personality. You play in the right market in New York. In order to do it, though, you have to make an effort. You have to take trips overseas during the offseason. You have to be out and about on social media. Not just when your team signs Cole and you put an emoji. You actually have to say words. Words have to have meaning. They have to be humorous. They have to be talked about. You've got a chance to do it. So, soccer players, pervasive in the male athletes. Soccer teams. Now, what about females? Could there be a difference in the female list? Well, I was fascinated, so I wanted to take a look. Here's the top 10. There's All this stuff went on this year. You know, male, female, all of the conversations about equal pay and with uh, the Women's World Cup and the Men's World Cup and men's soccer and FIFA. Who are the top female athletes worldwide? Would you believe that number one is Megan Rapino? I would, and she is. Number two, Serena Williams. Then Naomi Osaka. How about Alex Morgan? Number four. How about Simone Biles? Number five. Becky Lynch. She's the wrestler, WWE. Number six. March is seven. Ronda Rousey. Remember her? Ronda Rousey. I wouldn't want to fight her. Maria Sharapova, I wouldn't want to play her. She's number nine. And then Caitlin Ohashi. What an interesting female top ten list. They're Americans. They're from the United States, except for Marta. How is it possible, although Naomi Osaka, she took Japanese citizenship. We talked about nothing personal. She took Japanese citizenship to play for Japan in the Olympics in 2020. But she lives right here in America. So out of the top ten female athletes, nine of ten are women. 
of the top 10 male athletes and the top 10 male athletes, you've got only four who are in U.S. major sports. And for the top teams, you've got one. So what can change by 2020? Well, if I'm Major League Baseball and I'm the NBA and NFL, I'm spending a lot of time on this because what you may not realize, Twitter, social media, Instagram, TikTok, followers, these things matter more than ratings. I spent 18 years obsessed with ratings. How many people are watching my league, my team, my game on cable? How many? That's not what I should have been obsessed with. I should have been obsessed with how many followers do the Marlins have on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. What are we doing from a social media standpoint? We started a social media department three years too late. We had one or two guys doing it, people. We should have had 10. It should have been as big as our sales department. When I look back and think about we could have been on the ground floor and weren't, how is it possible that all teams don't have a TikTok account as an example? TikTok is where it's at. The Mets started being active on TikTok, as they should be. This is how in the 2020 decade, we will measure asset appreciation for your team, where you stand in social media rankings as a team, where your superstars are as a league, that will be the defining moment. One of the things that I, uh, I love doing and, and I, I don't get a chance to talk about it enough, but I wanted to talk about, you know, you've heard me talk about what I miss about being president of a team. You've heard me talk about some of the things I did uh, as president of a team. But I want to spend a minute here as 2019 is coming to an end. One of the things that I really miss, and you heard me talk about it, is my work in the community and, what, and being a part of an organization that does a ton of things in the community. I want to tell you a story about a program that we started that Derek Jeter summarily dismissed and got rid of only because I was a part of the program. So short-sighted of him because it made such a difference in Miami and really all of South Florida. But I always felt as though, and we had hundreds of employees, thousands, and I always felt like productivity during the course of a day, you know, it wanes. We talk about what the attention span is of millennials, Generation Xers, really anybody my age or younger, how effective and efficient are they when they're doing their job? And one of the things I always thought is that morale, team building events matter. Swag matters. Little gestures by me mattered. When I would take the time to write a handwritten note to my employees thanking them for a job well done, when I would take the time to have a meeting with anyone who wanted to walk into my office door. I would never say no to anyone. My assistant, Beth, would schedule anyone who wanted to sit with me, who worked for me and with me. But what I really looked for in an employee and what really mattered to me is where they stood on the community side and how willing they were to give of their time. But as any good parent, and I did feel like a parent when you're a president of a team, you are like a parent. One of the things that I did purposefully is every year, I would close the office twice, two full days where every single employee of the Miami Marlins or Florida Marlins would do a community event. There'd be a day of engagement, we'd call it, where we would spend a full day, the entire office engaging the community. We'd leave someone to man the phones, but that's it. Everybody, top to bottom. You're the GM of the team. You're doing the day of engagement. You're the trainer. You're the sales guy. You're in marketing. You're the team president. Whoever you are, you're spending a full day. Now, 
a lot of people looked askance at me. How could you close your office for a day because it's paid? You're paying all the employees. All the hourly employees are getting paid the hours for the work they do. But those people didn't get it. When you're in the community, that is part of your job. You are spreading our brand, the Marlins brand, or your company's brand in a positive way when you are visiting senior centers, when you are doing toy drives for kids who can't afford Christmas presents or Hanukkah presents, when you are making appearances, when you are doing grocery shopping for people who can't afford food, when you're visiting homeless shelters, when you're visiting older people, younger people, poor people, sick people. Everything we did had two sides to it. Nobody will admit this, but on nothing personal, you know that we, we give it to you straight. There's two sides to the working in the community. And for some reason, teams just don't get this. Teams only get one side. 90% of teams who do things in the community are doing it to check the box. They're doing it because cameras are rolling. They're making appearances. They're having their players make appearances so they can write about it on social media so that they can look as though they're being a good community partner. And I'm fine with that because I'm a consequentialist. And what that means is that it's the end result that matters to me, not the motivation. The end result is people are being helped in the community. The motivation, it's not very sincere. It's people doing it. The the current Marlins are a great example. I am calling you out, Derek. And the reason I'm calling you out is that you're doing things around this community and you're doing it with the cameras on. When we were doing things and when you want to be doing it and making a difference, you do it with the cameras off. I got approached by two people, a guy named Alex Marin and a woman named Angela Smith. Angela Smith ran our community department. Alex Marin was an employee. Alex Marin, ironically, now works for Scott Boris, shockingly. But Alex Marin got his, uh, got his feet wet working for the Marlins. They came up to me with an idea many years ago. They wanted to do a community program that would cost a lot of money, but it would make a huge difference And it would be known all around South Florida. It would be a threshold cornerstone project that would be noticed in baseball, that would be noticed in Miami and South Florida, but more importantly, would make the biggest difference of any team in Major League Baseball. And I was interested. They pitched me this idea, and they pitched the idea. It was a program called Ayudan. Ayudan in Spanish means help, to help. And we were called the Blue Shirts. We gave a blue shirt. It was a Marlins blue jersey that said Ayudan to every single employee. We split the employees into teams. We made it a competition because we're a baseball team. We love competition. We had prizes for the winners. That was money, money to the winners, not for themselves, for those winners to give to charity. We had money set aside for those teams to make donations We had days set aside for teams to go out and do community events. We had days set aside where the whole firm would close, and we had days set aside where individual teams would go out into the community. And we never once made someone take a vacation day, a sick day, an off day. These were paid days where during the course of the year, these teams would want to get points. Ayudan points by making appearances by giving speeches, by being involved in the community, by doing something charitable. And the team at the end of the year with the most points wins, and the team who wins gets recognized at an end-of-year dinner and gets a check to give away to a charity of their choice. Why am I so emotional about Ayudan? 
because those blue shirts were everywhere. And more so than a World Series trophy, more so than a ballpark, more so than an all-star game, more so than selling a franchise at top value, more so than anything I ever did in my 18-year career was to be smart enough to say yes. See, as president, you get proposed things every day. That's all that happens to you all day, every day. Literally, people propose ideas. The hardest thing to do is to decide what's a thumbs up like in Gladiator, what's a thumbs down, and what's a thumbs middle. Give me more information. When Alex and Angela pitched Ayudan to me, it was an immediate thumbs up. I went right to the budget and changed the budget. Would I sacrifice a utility player to do an Ayudan program? Every single time, without a question. I would take money out of a payroll to do a community program that was so deeply entrenched into our community that made such a big difference. It was an easy decision. And guess what happened the minute the team was sold? End of Ayudan. I don't take it personally being erased from the history of the Marlins, having every picture of me that was ever up in the ballpark taken down and probably stepped on and spray painted like with the mustache and the fake glasses. I'm good with it. Maybe a Napoleon hat put on my head. No problem. Any plaque, any picture, get rid of it. Any recognition, in the, any, any award that we got during our tenure, put it into storage. No problem. But when you take away community program and replace it with programs that are so patently, obviously, for PR purposes only, it does make me crazy. Don't get me wrong. The Marlins do do plenty in the community. It's important to be a partner when it comes to charity in the community. But it's more important to do it when nobody's looking. And I'm so proud of all of the employees I worked with over the years, the 16 seasons I had in Florida. And to you, Angela and Alex, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Alex, you know I still love you even though you're with Boris. You've gone to the dark side. But what you did with that IUDOM program will never be forgotten by tens of thousands of people at a minimum. You know, as I think back, we were just talking about the new ballpark. And uh, what is the new ballpark known for in, in Miami? Well, you could say that it's known for not having a naming rights deal. Yes, it's still called Marlins Park. That's fine. You could say that it's known for the home run sculpture that was taken down, that phenomenal red groom sculpture that I love that Billy Corbin can't stand. Don't at Billy Corbin about it. He'll just get grumpy. You can at David P. Sampson about it if you don't like it. But it's cool. And it's fine that, you, that you, Jordan, that Jeter spent $3 million to remove it from inside the ballpark and reassemble it on the east side of the ballpark. I guess it's going to go off every day at 3.05. Big whoop. But I guess what I think we're known for more is a huge trade we made in 2012. It was November 19th when that trade got approved. And I want to give you an insight into that trade that's really never been spoken about before. And it's about what happened and how that trade came to be. So for those not around in 2012 or for those who can't remember at all, the trade in 2012 came after our first year in a ballpark, and it was a blockbuster trade between the Marlins and the Toronto Blue Jays. The GM at the time was Alex Anthopoulos for the Blue Jays, who's now with the Braves. It was Larry Beinfest and Mike Hill with the Marlins and myself. And we traded Mark Burley, Jose Reyes, Josh Johnson, John Buck, and Emilio Bonifacio, yes, those five players, for Henderson Alvarez, Adani Echevarria, 
Yunel Escobar, Jake Marisnik, Anthony Descalfani, Justin Nicolino, and Jeff Mathis. Everyone got that? That's five for seven, a 12-player trade. Burley, the Marlins, had just signed to a free agent deal before the 12th season. Same with Reyes. John Buck was a free agent signing. Josh Johnson was one of the best pitchers in baseball when he wasn't hurt. Emilio Bonifacio was like a, a firecracker at the top of the lineup. He couldn't get on base, but when he did, it was great. Good fielder and just an all-around great guy. Why is it that we were willing to trade these five guys, and how did the trade start? Well, it started because we knew we had a cut payroll, and we knew that we had backloaded the contracts for Mark Burley and for Jose Reyes. So we really needed to trade them because we needed to get Hanley Ramirez uh, back, and we needed to— he, we wanted, he could have played short. We needed to, it turns out he didn't, and we ended up not having him on the team either. But we, we just wanted to move Reyes and Burley. That was sort of the, how we went out during that offseason. So we called every team, and we, we started doing this before the end of the World Series in 2012. We knew we were firing Ozzy Guillen. We knew the season had been a disaster. We had not hit our revenue numbers at all. The banks were completely up our tuchus. We had to lower our expenses. We had to because we couldn't increase our revenue. So the only way to lower expenses is we could fire 100 employees, and that wouldn't equal one year of Mark Burley. And we knew Burley had no no-trade clause, even though he wanted one. I was close with Mark Burley and his wife, Jamie. And uh, it, this was painful, and I'll talk about the personal pain in a minute. But at the end, business prevailed. So we called around to other teams, and there was a lot of interest. But we had to pay money, uh, pay down Burley and Reyes. The reason why we had to pay Burley down is he had a great year for us in 2012. But the way we backloaded the contract was such that what he was due in the final few years of his deal was a disproportionate amount than what the average annual value is if you had made it a split payment. So every team we spoke to said, listen, of course we'll talk about Burley, but you have to give us enough money that you would have paid him in 2012 when he pitched for you what he should have been paid to begin with. And we were not interested in sending any money if we were going to trade Mark Burley. We felt as though Burley was someone who uh, he has 30 starts a year. He is someone who could make a contender uh, over the hump into the playoffs. We thought it could be us, but it wasn't. So we get to the Blue Jays. We get to Alex Anthopoulos. And wouldn't you know it, we had a, uh, uh, we had a, a fish on a hook. Anthopolis at the time in Toronto was sort of a maverick, wild, wild west kind of GM, which is exactly what we wanted and what we needed to deal with. He had a corporate owner in Rogers, so he really was sort of on his own at that time. And he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to get the Blue Jays into the playoffs. And he had a terrible syndrome as it related to the Red Sox and the Yankees. Just he was insane with jealousy over them, which I don't blame him being in the AL East. That happens. So Anthopoulos says, you know, we definitely have interest in Burley. And I said to Larry at the time who was doing the negotiation, I said, Larry, just out of curiosity, they have money because Rogers is a corporation. Find out what their interest would be in Reyes. And uh, because they could use, they had a young shortstop named Danny Echeverria. They played a shortstop named Yunel Escobar. Mediocre. But Jose Reyes, he could be a difference maker. So Anthopoulos of the Blue Jays comes back to us and says, you know, I could talk about Reyes and Burley. And we said, all right, if you want to talk about Reyes and Burley, we're going to need back. We're going to need back pitching, and we're going to need back a shortstop. So we're going to want your top prospect at the time, 
pitching prospect Henderson Alvarez, and we're also going to want back a Danny Echevarria. So he balked at that at first because he was taking on so much money. Jose Reyes was signed to a $100 million deal, and Burley still had several years left at a, a large AV, let's say 15, 16, 17 million, which now gets you a number five starter, but in 2012 it got you a number, a solid number two, which is what Burley was. And then something happened to me. I was sitting in Larry's office, I remember it well, and we were saying, you know, what if we try to expand this deal and try to cure all of our PR, rip off the Band-Aid, let's get rid of the entire team, let's get rid of everybody making money, and let's start over. We're in trouble here. This team is not good enough. They couldn't win with Ozzie Guillen. We still have to pay Ozzie Guillen, even though he's not going to be our manager. We have... No chance to hit our revenue targets for the new ballpark. But the expenses have gone up because we're now running our own park instead of playing in Dolphin Stadium as a tenant. So I had instructed Larry that we had to lower the payroll, let's say, by $50 million. So we then spoke to Anthopolis and said, listen, do you want to make the playoffs? We have a trade for you where you are guaranteed to make the playoffs. Now, of course, we didn't know, but you use words like guarantee to make the playoffs because it makes other GMs, their ears perk up. They're so excited. Wait a minute. You're talking about Burley and Reyes? You'll talk about Josh Johnson? We said, of course. But if you take Josh Johnson, you're going to have to also take our catcher, John Buck. Well, we don't want John Buck. Well, but you're going to have to take him. If you want to talk about Johnson, we're giving you the top two pitchers in your rotation. We're giving you a starting shortstop, and Buck can be your starting catcher. Granted, Buck, who I traveled internationally with, someone I'm still in touch with, a great guy, he just was not a great player for us, and we overpaid him because his agents, the Levinson brothers, totally manipulated our owner, totally. That said, they then come back to us and say, well, we actually could do that. What is it you want for including Josh Johnson and John Buck? Well, we said, you know, we have Alvarez in the deal. Echeverria is in the deal. But we're going to want Yunel Escobar, which, so we'd have both of their shortstops. We want your top prospect, Jake Marisnik, who was like their number three prospect. He was just now traded to the Mets. He's still in the game. We also want this young guy who can pitch for us in our rotation named Anthony Descalfani. And then we're going to need a catcher to replace Buck. How about Jeff Mathis? We've been craving Jeff Mathis for 10 years. He was an untouchable with the Angels. He would be perfect. He'd come in, work with our young catchers, a great defensive catcher. We know he'd hit 200, be a great leader. And then we said, we want one of your other two great young starting pitchers. And the Blue Jays said, who? And we said, you know what? You give us the choice. So here was when the world changed. The Toronto Blue Jays called the Miami Marlins and said, we will trade you Henderson Alvarez, Adani Echevarria, Yunel Escobar, Jake Marisnik, Anthony Descalfani, Jeff Mathis, and one of Noah Syndergaard or Justin Nicolino. You choose, Marlins. And in return, we get back Alvarez uh, Burley, Reyes, Johnson, Buck, and Bonifacio. We had a choice of Noah Syndergaard or Justin Nicolino. Back before Syndergaard was who he is. And we went with Justin damn Nicolino. 
Oh, my God, did we screw that up. Now, at the time, Nicolino had much more pitchability. Syndergaard was throwing 99, but he was a one-pitch pitcher, and he was a righty. My rule is, if it's even, take the lefty, and if they're both close, close to the big leagues, take the lefty who's closer to the big leagues. We could put Justin Nicolino in our rotation in 2013. He's a lefty. He has perfect command. He'd be a perfect addition to our team. Syndergaard, he throws 100. He's got a chance to be a good major leaguer. But if he doesn't develop another secondary pitch, then he's going to be Matt Lindstrom. Matt Lindstrom was an old player who could throw 100 but had one pitch, really, and that was it. So we chose Justin Nicolino. The Blue Jays said, we got to check with Rogers. That's their owner with their board of directors. We said, we got to check with Jeffrey Loria. Sat with Jeffrey Loria, our owner, and we said to him, we have a trade in place where we can solve all of our payroll issues. The problem is we're going to get hammered. We're going to get hammered to the point of night sweats. It's going to be looked at its fire sale part four for this franchise. We're trading away every big name player who we had in 2012. All the excitement with all the free agents we signed, we're getting rid of after one year. This will hurt our reputation forever. There may be zero recovery. That said, Jeffrey, this is a great baseball trade. We are lowering your payroll and getting back players who we think are going to help. And as far as we're concerned, Reyes is going to be over the hill quickly. Buck never had a hill. So for us, we were giving them Mark Burley, who was an all-star superstar, but Henderson Alvarez would have a chance to be a top-of-the-rotation guy. Jeffrey Loria said, make the deal. I remember when he said it, we were on the phone talking about the PR side. He called me after we spoke with the GM. He said, David, how bad is it going to be? And I said, Jeffrey, it's going to be so bad, it's going to make the Wayne Huizinga fire sale of 97 a distant memory. He said, should we split it into counterparts? Meaning, should we trade all these guys but to five different teams? And I said, you know what? No, let's rip off the Band-Aid. Ripping off the Band-Aid hurts like hell. You catch all your hairs and you scream, but then it's gone. When you rip a Band-Aid off one hair at a time, one inch at a time, all you do is prolong the pain. Let's get all of our pain out of the way this second. Jeffrey agreed. My next call was to the commissioner's office. Bud Selig was the commissioner at the time. Bud, we have a trade. There's money going because we had to send a little money to Toronto, remember, for the Mark Burley trade. Bud Selig said, are you telling me that you have a trade in place, a 12-player trade, that you are shedding Burley, Reyes, Johnson, and Buck off your payroll and taking on no money? I said, that's the trade. He said, I'm not approving it. I got to get back to you. Word of the trade leaked. I wonder why word of a trade would leak before it's approved. Oh, I know why. Because I needed to make sure that Toronto was past pregnant. I wanted them to be crowning with excitement. I wanted the entire Canadian province of Ontario. I even wanted Quebec. I wanted everyone out to Vancouver to say Alex Anthopoulos is the king. He's the number one guy. We're getting, we're getting Jose Reyes and Mark Burley. We are going to make the playoffs. We're going to win a World Series. And that's exactly what happened. Word got out about the trade. We were crucified in Miami. But we had to do it financially. Rip off the Band-Aid. And in Toronto, they were beloved. Bud Selig calls me up three days later. Still no approval of the trade. He said, David, we got to hold up on approval of the trade. I need to speak 
further with Toronto. Ironically, the press had it wrong. The media thought the whole time in 2012 that the reason that trade was held up is that Bud Selig did not want the Marlins to do a fire sale. That is incorrect. Bud Selig did not want the Blue Jays to take on that much money. He had to speak to Rogers Communication and the chairman of the board to make the chairman aware that they were taking on hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. And did they really want to do it? He thought they were crazy. I thought it was beautiful. They approve it. The trade can happen. We start with physicals. And then it got interesting. The phone call comes in from the Blue Jays. Hey, listen, Josh Johnson failed his physical. And we said, what what do you mean? He's fine. Well, we just, uh, we're not going to pass him. I said, well, you don't pass him. There's no trade. And by the way, Henderson Alvarez failed his physical too. And the Blue Jays were so into the deal, they said, what do you mean Alvarez failed his physical? We said, well, we examined Alvarez. We spoke to, we, we examined the records and, you know, he's got elbow problems. We don't think he's going to have a long career and we needed him to be our number one pitcher. But guess what? It didn't matter. We were willing to pass Henderson Alvarez, even though he failed, because we made Toronto pass Josh Johnson, even though he failed, because there was no way the Blue Jays were going to let go of this trade. We had an opportunity to unwind it. We said no. I've never said that out loud. The reason we said no to unwinding or taking Johnson out or taking Alvarez out, Alvarez ended up throwing a no-hitter for the Marlins. Looking back on that baseball deal, even choosing Nicolino over Syndergaard, it still was a better baseball deal for the Marlins, all in all. The players who went to Toronto, Johnson never made it, was hurt. Reyes was never good. Burley had some good years for Toronto, but it just didn't work out for them at all. They didn't win. I think their total war in 2015, like three years later, was a .6, and the Marlins had gotten 5.0 out of that, and that's not counting the money. It was a huge success. It was critical, critical for the Marlins that they were able to make that trade. It's the most upsetting trade I've ever had to do in my career. It hurt. When I called Mark Burley and told him about the trade, he hasn't spoken to me since. I used to speak to him every day uh, during the course of 2012. I spoke to his wife every day. I watched games with his wife. Everyone, every game during 2012, I'd visit her suite and, and we'd talk and spend time together. They don't talk to me anymore because we traded them to a city that doesn't allow pit bulls and they're, big, they're a big dog family. And I explained to Mark and to Jamie, his wife, that it's business. This is not personal. I didn't purposely choose a team that doesn't allow animals. I know you're big animal lovers. I was actually helpful to the Burley family doing community events in 2012, a ton of dog events. And I'm not a dog guy, but I did it because it was the nice and right thing to do. And I got to spend time with the Burleys and it was very nice. But the phone call telling Burley he was traded and I, I made that phone call myself. He was silent. Um, he was upset. I, I was upset. I said, Mark, I'm very sorry. It didn't work out. I wanted you to be a Marlin. I wanted us to have a better season. I wanted us to have a better team. And it just didn't work out. And it's not your fault. But we found a team to take all of you. And so five of you are going to Toronto. And he digested it over the course of days and decided that for the last seven years, he would never respond to a text. I still text him happy birthday every year. Jamie now responds and says thank you when I text her on her birthday. But they've never spoken to me since. I guess they thought it was personal, and I tried to explain to them that it actually was business. So that's the background of that 2012 trade. It was, uh, I've never been a part of any trade like it. Uh, I've never been a part of any trade that was so misunderstood. I've never been a part of a trade with so many players. 
and I've never been a part of a trade that was so necessary to do and ended up working out from a baseball standpoint. But was the juice worth the squeeze? Hell no. I wish we didn't have to make that trade. It hurt my reputation, hurt the team's reputation. It hurt fans' feelings. I've had kids come up to me who were young in 2012, you know, crushed about that trade. And it's tough. It's tough to face that when you're the president of a team and you don't secrete yourself away in your office and you actually go out and talk to people and meet people and overcome all your social anxieties and overcome all your OCD and shake hands and put yourself out there. It's tough to hear things from from people who are legitimately hurt. I'm not talking about the crazy people who give you death threats, which I got after that trade. I'm not talking about the crazy people who use personal uh, swear words and, and, and say things about your family. I'm talking about people who genuinely loved Burley or Reyes or Johnson. These are great people at the end of the day. Two years later at the World Baseball Classic, or maybe it was one year, I had a chance to finally sit down with Jose Reyes. And uh, there had been a lot of water under the bridge with Jose Reyes after that trade. He had signed that six-year, $100 million deal with us, and he was devastated by the trade up to Toronto. He loves Miami, obviously, and and I sat and talked to him, and, and he was here with the Dominican team for the World Baseball Classic playing at uh, Marlins Park. And uh, he flashed his smile, and he winked, and he said, I get it. I get it, Poppy. Call me Poppy. And uh, he understood. Burley still hasn't understood, but I hope one day he will. So we have a uh, – I want to end this pod with a, with a quick story and a quick sort of some words of suggestions. We do a segment called So You Want to Talk to Samson, and uh, that's when people go on my Twitter at David P. Samson, and they DM me. My DMs are open, and they ask for they ask questions. They ask questions about their career. They give me topic ideas, and I try to answer as much as I can as often as I can. And somebody wanted to know. I did a segment that, that you all watched, and I appreciate that. Uh, it was about So You Want to Work in Sports. So now the question is, now that you're in sports, let's say you get a job, so someone wants to know, all right, you work in sports, now what? Can you discuss with me your view of how to stay in sports? So I want to give you a few minutes on that because that's a great question, and I didn't cover it, but I'm going to now. So, I'm, so you took your one-page resume, you interviewed, you took the staple out, you didn't put gum in your mouth, you sat down, you got a job, now what do you do day one? Do you know what it feels like to get an ID that has the name of a team on it with your picture? You go to human resources, the proud feeling that you have, the sense of loving that you have an opportunity to work for a sports team. My advice to you is let that feeling marinate through you and let it pass away within 45 seconds. I'm giving you 45 seconds to say, oh my God, I work for a sports team now. Because those people who continue to say, oh, my God, every single day end up being so distracted that it really doesn't work out. So what do you do when you sit down your first day? You've gone through training. You do your job. Let's say you're in sales. Let's say you're in marketing, finance, doesn't matter, baseball operations, doesn't matter, stadium operations. This is true of every single sports team out there, no matter what league. It's a company. That's all it is. Don't look at it as though you work for a sports team. Look at it as though you work for a corporation. And when you start working for a corporation, you put your head down and you become the hardest working person who's sitting in your area. Do you know how many people have come up to me and said, I can't stand working with Jane Doe or John Doe 
They're on MLB.com, CBS.com. They're on the web all day. They're shopping on Amazon. It's making me crazy. Well, here's my message to you about how you keep your job in sports. You should pat those people on the back and thank them. Because here's the rule. In the world of business and on sports teams and in every company you work for, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's my 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. The question is, are you going to be in the 20% or are you going to be in the 80%? The hardest thing to do is to recognize where you belong. There are people in the 80% who think they're in the 20%. That's called delusional. There are people in the 20% who think they're in the 80%. That's called not having a clue. There's people in the 80% who want to be in the 20% but have no chance to ever be there. And there's people in the 20% who are going to get to the 80% because they're obsessed with the 80% of the people who don't do any work. And then there's part of the 20% who crave being in that 20%. They love being in that 20%. And those are the people who are going to take over the companies for which they work. If you are the busiest person at your desk in your area, that's a good sign. Don't complain. If your boss comes up to you and gives you extra work, you have one word that you say. Yes, I'll take it. I can do it. You never say to your boss, I'm too busy. You never say to your boss, that's outside of my purview. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. You've never asked me to do that before. Those are words and phrases that should never come out of your mouth. You take it and then you figure out how to do it later. Because as a boss, I can tell you what I did. I gave work to the busiest people and I ignored the 80% who didn't do anything. Let them be. Those are the people on Amazon.com all day. Those are the people on the website, watching TV, watching Netflix, watching movies. Good. Let them do it. That proves they're in the 80%. And for me to be in the 20%, I got to find eight people who are doing worse than I am. And I can only afford to find one person doing better than I. So I used to love it when people around me weren't working hard when I was on Wall Street. Loved it. So I always encourage people to look around and be okay. Be okay when your boss comes up to you and talks to you. Be okay when you're asked to switch locations, when you're asked to switch positions, when you're asked to switch jobs. The answer is yes. I will do that job. I will take that job. I will learn how to do it. You want me to move? There are people here at CBS who get asked to move from Florida to Connecticut, from Connecticut to Florida. There's studios in both places. If you're asked to move to Connecticut, you know what the answer is? When's my plane? It doesn't matter. You have kids, family, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend. It doesn't matter. You take a job. Now, what happens when it comes time for your year-end review? And you get the review, and the people, your, your, your supervisor says, you did a great job. And we would like to promote you from manager to senior manager. But in return, there's really no raise, maybe a 1% raise. Here's what you say to your boss. I appreciate very much that title, but I would rather have a larger raise. That's the kind of employee I love. There are many employees over the years I've had who were title crazy. They were the assistant this, they wanted to be the associate that. They were the associate that, they wanted to be a manager, then a director, then a senior director, then a vice president, whatever they wanted to be. You know what? I'd give titles away like I give away lice. No problem. 
money. That's a different story. You come in and you tell me that you want a $10,000 raise, a $5,000 raise, a $20,000 raise. You tell me you want a contract. You tell me that you're being recruited to go elsewhere. I like it. Use leverage. Use leverage with your bosses. And if they don't take your leverage and they fire you, you'll get another job. If they don't take your leverage, it's, it's not because you didn't try. Don't ever trade money for title. It's a secret that we bosses have when we go to these meetings, like boss meetings. We always say, hey, offer title. It's better than offering money. Always go for money over title. But again, the majority of people with whom you work will choose title. Just like the majority of people with whom you work choose to be in the 80%. So to stay in sports, to sum up, number one, work harder than everyone next to you on both sides. Number two, The person to your left and right is going to be gone way sooner than you. So who cares if they're not focused, distracted, and they make you do more work? Number three, never say no when you're offered to do something that is outside of your purview, outside of your comfort zone. If you're asked to move somewhere, to do something, to go on assignment, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Because in sports, you're going to work for five teams in your career at a minimum. You're going to move to four cities at a minimum. You're going to change sports. You have to be nimble. Be nimble. And the last thing I would advise to you how to keep a job in sports is look at it as though you work for a company. Look at it as though you're not a jock sniffer. Don't sit around. You know how many people I've fired for sitting around watching BP? Don't get seduced by the sexiness of working in sports. It's great to talk about when you're outside of the office. It's great to go to a bar and say you're in sports. I get it. It's great to work with the people because you meet amazing people. But the people who succeed and have long-term careers are those who take it as a business, always as a business. They never look at it as anything personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.